most people will be able to accurately account for the thoughts that they were thinking that led up to a decision. I was thinking about my relationship, that I was frustrated, or I was thinking about my job, that I wasn't fulfilled, that I wasn't being paid enough, or I was uh, thinking about the roommate situation that I didn't feel appreciated, and there was a level of realizing that people weren't putting as much effort in, etc., etc. So people can almost always situate decisions and experiences within narratives of thoughts and ideas. Less frequently, I'll hear a report of just the overall mood that people are in. Sometimes people will say, well, I was distracted, I was edgy, I was anxious, I was angry. And that's not terribly uncommon to hear, but by no means as frequent do I hear people's moods being um, part of the picture they paint or of the awareness that they carry from a situation. Even less frequently than the moods, then I'll hear reports of the body states of emotions, which are, my stomach was tight with fear, my, the base of my throat was contracted with a, a feeling of powerlessness, or my shoulders were agitated with, you know, feeling overwhelmed. And then, the least frequently of all do people report is the breath or just the posture that they were in. I was breathing, my breath was shallow or deep, I was sitting upright or slouched. I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody, after they've had a major event in their life, lead off the story by, yes, my breath was heavy and I was leaning forward. Doesn't seem to. We tend to, in other words, fiercely identify with our thoughts as the primary motor and author of our decisions and our choices. And who we are, in fact, we tend to identify with our thoughts. We tend to point to our thoughts as that which motivates us, guides us. Uh, is, in fact, it's hard for us sometimes to even imagine that outside of our thoughts there could be anything that's deciding what we do. Uh, in fact, many people think of logic and reason, reason as what they aim for when they are making a decision. And when we ask, okay, well, what is logic and reason, they tend to paint a, a kind of disembodied mind that's not influenced by emotions or by any mood or by any body state, but is in fact a, uh, a kind of a, a little inner thinking machine that can somehow achieve logical reasoning without any influence from the, the body or emotions or the breath. 
And as you'll see from my talk, this is a profound misunderstanding of not only how we do reach logical decisions, but also uh, if we try to make decisions without awareness of our emotions and our gut intuition and our breath, then all kinds of poor choices ensue. So let's go back for a moment of 2,400 years, 500 years to the Buddha. And uh, he was the first thinker that proposed a different version of how choices and decisions are generally made. In his chain of arising, the Buddha said that when we wind up in a situation, a set of circumstances, a conflict, an interaction, the first thing we feel are body feelings, gut feelings, which some of us call intuition. They're felt in the body, and they begin to guide us. The Buddha said that these gut feelings are either positive or negative. I like this person, this situation, I want more of this person, more of this situation, or I don't like this person or situation, I want to get away, or I don't really give a toss. One of those three. The next, the Buddha said, is we will then have emotional states. We'll crave more, or we'll become averse, or we'll become fixated on self, and then self-centered, ego-centric, worrying about what does this mean to me. And then finally, after the gut feelings and the uh, emotions, the moods, finally, the Buddha says, those two things prime the thoughts that arise. And he said that very often, if we're unaware of the two, the gut feelings and the emotions, the moods that we're in, then the thinking comes out skewed, what he called upadana, or a kind of thinking that is not helpful. Now, 2,300, almost 400 years passed, and in 1885, a great American psychologist named William James appears, and he notes through research that actually people have gut feelings and body movements before they ever make decisions. That if we're walking and we see something scary which looks like to our uh, unconscious mind a snake, we will jump and, get, and start running before we even know, snake, I better protect myself. If we start to see something that looks really delicious and we're hungry, our entire body will turn towards it, we'll start to salivate, we'll start moving in the... We'll, the body will move towards what's called action potential to reach and grab the slice of cake or whatever. So the body and our emotions are already priming us before we have the thought, oh, I'm hungry, I should have some cake. After another 130 years, another person comes around and takes the James Lang theory and refines it even further. And his name is Antonio Damasio. 
he writes a wonderful book called Descartes' Error. And Damasio writes, when Descartes wrote that the mind is entirely distinct from the body, he made a grievous error. Separating body and mind is erroneous. The action of biological drives, body states, and emotions are an indispensable foundation for rational choice. In other words, he finally nails it and says, if we are to be rational, we cannot have disembodied thoughts trying to figure it out, solve our lives, make wise decisions. And then throughout the entire course of the book, he reveals one study after another where he shows that people who function optimally, like card players, are always registering their body and their feelings when they play a hand or when they decide not to play a hand, when they decide to bet or not bet. And he shows that, in fact, if, if card players were only to use their rational mind, they would always lose. Because most of the calculations that go into playing cards and making decisions which require accessing so many experiential bits of um, neuronal stored information can't be done logically. We have to rely on intuition, which essentially compacts all of our life experience into a very simple yes or no. Player hand, don't play your hand. Stay here, don't stay here. And then he also shows that with people who have any impaired function of the parts of the brain that report their body states, in most of us that's the insula and the orbital frontal of the frontal lobe, if any lesions or lesions or uh, strokes or cancer or uh, trauma has affected those areas and we can't register clearly our body states, then the people who have those states will begin to make increasingly poor self-sabotaging decisions their lives get worse and worse. Because, again, even though we like to believe that our decisions are made entirely logically in the left hemisphere of the brain, in fact, all of the so-called lower regions of the brain, the right hemisphere with its emotional activations, the midbrain with gut feelings, the brain stem with the way we breathe, all of these parts of the brain are needed to navigate through life. Very recently, Zindel Siegel wrote uh, what he called the Mindful Brain, which was a, a, a survey of all the recent studies of emotion regulation. And he said, in healthy individuals, cognitive appraisal of emotion occurs constantly recasting what could be initially negative appraisals as being less negative. In other words, we might sometimes feel uh, a feeling state in something upsetting, but if we take time and we evaluate what we're feeling, we make smarter and smarter choices. 
He then also concludes that in mood disorders, emotion recognition is impaired. So the more we're unaware of what we're feeling, how our moods are, what state we're in, we make poorer, again, and poorer choices. So, this is why the Buddha, at the core of the practice, suggested what is called mindfulness. And mindfulness is a word that has become, in our culture, completely degraded. Uh, it's now something that's very often taught in big businesses as a way to keep people working longer hours while making exploitive wages. Uh, but originally, the Buddha developed mindfulness not simply as a way to reduce stress, although it's actually been shown by Zindel Siegel and others to be extremely efficient in uh, not only reducing stress, but reducing panic attacks. But beyond all this, the Buddha was suggesting a practice that helps us integrate all of our experience in making decisions. Flips the order that we talked about. As I said at the beginning, uh, most people I work with are naturally aware of their thoughts first, then their moods, then their gut feelings in their body, and finally the breath. The Buddha lifts it and says, in every situation, first become aware of the breath and what the body is doing. Then become aware of your gut feelings and what they're saying. Then become aware of moods. And only after we do all that do we become aware of thoughts the breath is more important than thoughts, but I think he flipped the order around because he realized that in our default state of mind, we are far more attached to our thinking than we are to our breathing or to our gut feelings. We tend to identify so much with our... He's just busily scheduling, carrying around a narrative of everything we have to achieve, trying to figure out and solve life, without even, at times, spending even the most cursory glance at what's going on in my body. How is my breath right now? How, what is my body signaling emotionally? What mood am I in? Now, as I'll also say, uh, simply because we're aware of feelings and moods doesn't mean we should always follow them. In fact, as Siegel and Damasio and uh, Malcolm Gladwell in the book Blink point out, there are times when our intuitions and our feelings can be entirely wrong. And we should know to disregard them. But, here's the essential thing. If we are unaware of what our feelings are, our gut feelings, our intuition, if we're unaware of what mind state we're in, it often means that they will be pushing us and guiding us even though we're unaware of it. They will have an influence and we will not know it. So to decide whether to follow our intuition or to override it requires first to know what it is, to know what our body is saying, what our breath is saying, what our moods are saying. So, 
the mindfulness meditation we'll be doing is literally following the Buddha's order, and I'm going to review it briefly. The first part is body awareness, and the Buddha says in body awareness, we first just know how our breath is, and then how to use the breath to relax the body. So what the Buddha is saying is right off, a lot of times if we're in this situation where we feel we have to intervene, we have to do something, if we simply examine the breath, see how we're breathing, and change the breath skillfully, we can actually reduce a lot of the stress that we're carrying around, which compels us very often to act, or I should say react. Second, the Buddha says, become aware of all of the sensations involved in whether we're sitting, standing, walking, talking, etc. Whatever we're doing, just become aware of the sensations. The reason is, is because that detaches us from our thoughts. Again, it pulls us into the body. It grounds us. Three, we view the body as not my own, because that makes it... Some people find it, oh, this is my body as it changes our relationship. Just view the body as a part of our experience. And then four, reflect. And this is the uh, a very key part. Reflect on the body's impermanence. This body, my body, will one day die. It will expire. This last part, becoming aware of the body's impermanence, is such a visceral change in the way we make decisions, at least in my experience. If I go into any situation where somebody says to me, hey, Josh, you want to teach this retreat? Uh, do you want to take on another class? Do you want to write this article for Tricycle? Whatever, the things that can come up in a Buddhist teacher's life. Um, if I... If I'm just in my mind, I'll just try to figure that out logically. Well, what makes sense for me? But if I suddenly remind myself of the time I went as a... Uh, when I was training, I went to see an autopsy, which is part of one of the traditional trainings that the Buddha had people do. When you see a body, and then you realize, oh, wow, this person, a day or two ago, was just waking up out of bed before they got hit by the car or they, they uh, fell down the stairs or they had the stroke. And ten minutes before they expired, if somebody said, hey, by the way, you've got ten minutes left, would they have been happy with what they were thinking? If somebody said to me, you've got three months left, what would I do? That doesn't mean we always have to make our decisions entirely from the perspective of death could happen anytime, but to weigh it in. Very often we make decisions as if we have forever, as if nothing could happen and we have guarantees of 30 more years alive or whatever. But when we make a decision with remembering, bearing in mind, oh, I could have far less time than I would like to believe, 
what does that do to my choice? How does that change my perspective? It's not an intellectual idea. The Buddha in the Satipatthana actually tells practitioners to go to a graveyard, which at that time was not actually a graveyard, it was actually what's called charnel grounds, where he, bodies were dumped. And he says in the Sutta, watch them a day after they, the body a day after it was dumped, and then uh, go back a week later when it's being consumed by worms. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm sort of showing you the idea. Uh, and it's being picked at by vultures, he says, and it's being eaten by wild dogs. I mean, that's grotesque. And then he says, go back even later when it's reduced to just some tissue and bones. And then he says, go back even later when it's just bones to see this is what happens to bodies. I am in a body. It's not my body, but I'm in it. So the next is feelings. Feelings, the Buddha said, just know what the emotional mind is signaling us through the body. Is am I? Is my body telling me to get out of here, or I don't like this, or is it saying I like this, everything's okay, or is it just neutral? How does my body, when I'm in a conversation with somebody, tell me I'm uncomfortable with this person? I'm uncomfortable in this situation. Well, my shoulders might get tight. My chest might get tight. My stomach might get tight. My forehead or jaw might lock. My body has so many different ways of saying I'm uncomfortable. And the, sometimes I can even read by where the tightness is what emotional state I'm in. If my stomach is tight, very often it's fear. I'm frightened of what's going on. If my muscles in my forearms and my jaw are tight, it might be I'm angry. I'm unhappy with what this person is saying. On the other hand, if I notice my body relaxing, it's actually telling me I'm comfortable. My intuition is saying, go with this. We use our intuition time. If somebody says to you, for, what do you want for dinner? Stir fry or... Uh, stir fry or... Mushu vegetable, whatever. You, you hold the word in your mind. You don't go over the protein list and the calorie list and how long will it take me to burn off. Uh, well, some people do that. Uh, but most people will just simply weigh it by their intuition. They'll like hold an image of the food in their mind and the food that they have an, a positive association with, they'll feel their body relax when they think of that food and then they'll order. It's a gut feeling. We synthesize years of eating into a very simple yes or no. If, some, if you're an interior decorator, somebody says, wow, should I paint my apartment yellow or green? You don't logic it out. There's no reason why yellow is better than green. You just think yellow. You feel your body. Bad idea. Green. Oh, softer. Okay, we're going with green. That's how we make gut Sometimes we should ignore our guts. As Malcolm Gladwell and Blink points out, while our guts are great to follow in work, in aesthetics, design, art, anything creative, there are times if we've had, if we found that our intuition with people, romantic, choosing partners, is not so great, then we might want to not follow our guts. I, I always quote the story. One woman years and years ago told me that she realized that she was constantly mistaking 
her body's signals of fear for lust. So she sees some guy, her body would be saying, oh no, stay away, stay away, and her mind was going, oh, I guess I think he's hot. Because <laughs> the signals are very similar. They use the same vagal vagus nerve, they use the same amygdala, they use uh, hypothalamus, they use everything. They're using the same circuits. you think they would have sent, like really kept those two apart, right? <laughs> but they're very, very similar. Alright, so consciousness is um, know when essentially our awareness, our consciousness, our moods are settled and spacious and clear, in which case it's safe to make decisions. Or, if we're in a state of mind that is agitated by anger or craving, for me that happens whenever a new Apple gadget that I do not need comes out. Immediately, I just feel my mind flowing towards the unnecessary Apple thing that not only can I not afford, but I don't need. And there's also states of distraction or agitation, jumpiness. Now, emotionally, those states of agitation, distraction, moving towards something, moving away, they're fine. They're important to feel and go through, but they're not the states where we want to make important decisions about our future or macro decisions about what we want to do with our lives. It's a better thing to do to read the body, to note the mood, and wait until the mood settles down until we're in a mind that is more tranquil before we make decisions, because a tranquil mind is more spatially aware of all the information available to us. One of my teachers, Kanasaro Viku, who I've been fortunate enough to uh, attend study with for well over a dozen years, uh, he said that the mind is very often like a body of water, where we look at it, and it, the water looks like it's stationary. But when we put a stick in it while we're on a pier, then we suddenly see from the wake behind the stick that the water is moving pretty quickly. Very often that's my experience when I sit down to meditate. My mind can seem kind of settled, but when I sit down, and if instead of being able to just find the breath, or find the sounds of the room, or find and stay with a meta phrase, if my mind jumps about, then what it's telling me is that there's a lot of momentum and busyness carrying over from life. And trying to make a decision when the mind is busy and stirred up, and constantly in movement is a little bit like trying to paint a painting while the ground beneath us is moving. All right, that's not a winning analogy, but... <laughs> <laughs> I actually read this interesting study that kind of reminded me of this. A uh, sorry, clinical psychologist did a study where she had people write letters to their loved ones. And the first letter, or the second, she would just have them write while they were standing on two feet. And then the second one she would have them write while they were standing on 
balancing on one foot. And it turns out that the letters that people wrote to their loved ones while they were balancing on one foot were almost invariably saying that they felt there was something wrong, unstable, amiss, imbalanced about their relationship. When they wrote with two legs on the ground, their letters were always far more positive. That only not only shows the, like, the importance of the body, which I could go on and on, the, the studies about how important it is to make a decision while the body is relaxed. If we're, our body is closed off and tight, we'll make defensive decisions. If our body is open, spacious, and relaxed, we'll make open, spacious, and relaxed choices in our life. But also, if our minds are imbalanced, we'll make imbalanced decisions. And finally, after all of this, then we get to thoughts. And the Buddha says, just ask, are these thoughts the stuff of the kind of thinking that creates a distorted view? What creates a distorted view of the world? The biggest is taking experience personally. Thinking that this situation is about me, I'm alone, nobody will understand, I'm in this without anybody else, my experience is different. Adding that just alone, rather than seeing it in terms of what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, that things happen and our goal is to be as harmless and self-caring and careful as we can and compassionate. If we get stuck in the, it's all about me, or the thoughts of um, self-doubt, I'm the one who can't ever deal with these situations, I'm the one who always uh, experiences this, I'm an angry person, I'm incapable of going through change. I don't do parties very well. The moment we bring I and who I am into it, we tend to not clarify. We very often tend to create distorted beliefs. The freedom of not looking at a, a situation in terms of uniqueness or my back history, and just instead asking, what is the compassionate, kind, self-caring thing to do right now? And from those intentions, allow the thoughts to flow is far more safe. So, that's the lead-up for tonight's meditation. So find a really comfortable can somebody back just turn up the lights just a little bit, just the slightest bit, so that we can. There we go, just a little bit more. There we go. Thank you. So, we're going to do the mindfulness meditation. And just, the Buddha said, find a comfortable seated position. Closing the eyes and letting go of regard for the world 
for this moment, especially the sights, and bring your awareness into the body, and first, in the mindfulness suit, the Buddha says to locate the breath and just know, are you breathing in or out at this moment? Is your breath long or is your breath short? Simply find a comfortable place in the body to observe the breath and just first allow it to have a natural rhythm as much as you can. So next, noting if you're either the body's a little anxious, a little tight, or if it feels a little energyless and heavy, we can use the breath to relax and calm the body. Fidgety. There's a lot of energy coursing through it. Just take the out breath and extend it as smooth and long as you can until it becomes a long, fine thread of breath, slowly breathing. If you find that there's a lack of energy, the body feels heavy and tired, then hold the breath, the in-breath, before releasing it. And you can even take deep gulps of in-breath. Fill up the chest and hold the breath 
couple of beats longer before you release it. So let's bring awareness to the top of the head. And ask yourself, what would it feel like to breathe into the forehead? And then as we breathe out, just relax, soften any tension there. Then breathing into the eyes and the micro muscles around the eyes, and then as we breathe out, softening the eyes, the muscles around the eyes, and breathing into the nose and the mouth, breathing out, softening. Breathing into the jaw, breathing out, relaxing, breathing into the neck, the throat, and then as we breathe out, relaxing, any tightness, breathing into the left shoulder. Breathing out, letting it release. Breathing into the left arm. Breathing out. Breathing into the left palm. Breathing out. 
And then do that same process with the right shoulder. Relaxing the right shoulder. The right arm. Breathing into the center of the chest, the heart. And as we breathe out, soften around that area. Breathing into the sternum. Relaxing. Breathing into the belly. Softening, soft belly as we breathe line, the left time. The third part, reflecting on all these sensations of the body and the breath, just bring to mind the body's impermanence. One day, this body will stop breathing. This body will be a corpse. This body will age. This body and all its parts will not break down by mistake. It will break down because that is what all bodies do. This body comes with no guarantees. Now with our awareness on, the body brings your focus to the front of the body where gut feelings are most often display. And just notice right now, what is my body telling me? Is my body tight? Are the muscles clenching in the shoulders or in the jaw or the chest or the belly? Or is my body liking, approving, displaying signs of comfort? Does it feel more relaxed, perhaps, than when I started this sit? Are the feelings changing? And if there's a part of the body that's signaling comfort or discomfort, and I breathe into that area, does it stay the same or does it change?
Now, given all of these observations of the body and feelings, we should by now have a clue as to whether the mind is settled and clear and spacious and aware of the full body, or is the mind distracted by thoughts, memories? Is the mind small and contracted, just only capable of knowing a small part of the body? Is the mind jumping from one awareness to the next, or is it settled? Just know what state, what mood, what kind of consciousness the mind is in. Finally, bringing awareness to the actual content of the mind, the thoughts that it produces, allow thoughts to occur. But instead of climbing inside of those thoughts and losing awareness, of everything else, just observe what kind of thoughts the mind brings to our attention. Some thoughts will tell us, I can't wait until I get to such and such a place. How do I get to the next place I'm going. Why is this difficult for me? If only I had this or that. For some reason, my mind doesn't settle. All those kinds of thoughts that either diminish ourselves or diminish the present moment. The Buddha noted we're not conducive to clear 
voices in life. The clear awareness. But the thoughts that are of everything I need to be peaceful is right here, available to me right now. There's nothing wrong with this moment, and I am missing nothing. My experience is not unique, which doesn't mean it's unimportant. But this is what minds do. Finally, see if you can steer your mind towards thoughts of appreciation for yourself, for the people you practice with, for your practice. for the times you're generous, compassionate, for the people you feel securely connected to, skillful, insightful to ring the bowl, and rather than simply open up your eyes quickly, see if you can take the entire length of the sound so that you don't just flood awareness with the sights around us, but you slowly reintegrate sight into the body awareness, the breath awareness, the feeling awareness, the awareness of